Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of On My Mind. I'm Shelley Griffith, and today I'm delighted to have as my guest a good friend, Austin Sauerbrot, who's going to be speaking on a number of issues, and especially his profession as a community activist. And we're delighted to have you today, Austin. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Well, let's start out, as I do with most of my guests, give us a little of your family background, where you were raised, and and so forth, and how you've come to be here in Athens with us the last couple of years. Sure. So I grew up in a town called Wichita Falls, Texas. So it's about three hours north of Dallas, about 15 minutes from the Oklahoma border, and uh, lived there, you know, my whole life through through high school. And then... um, yeah, I ended up, uh, I went to a state university, uh, did most of my gen eds at a, at a state university called Midwestern State in Wichita Falls, and then did my, decided I wanted to get out of Texas and, and be in a new place, um, and ended up doing my last two years of college at Belmont University in, uh, in Nashville. So yeah, did my last two years of school there and, and ended up just falling in love with Tennessee and ended up living in Nashville for about what, a little over 12 years. Um, just got really very deeply involved in the Nashville community. You know, definitely was, definitely became, Beth Nashville is sort of where Tennessee became home to me. And then met, met my wife, Claire, and Claire is a, a priest in the Episcopal Church, and she got her first placement in Chattanooga. So we moved to Chattanooga, and we're there for, little over three years, and then she got a call at St. Paul's here in Athens. We've been here for almost exactly two years. So. And we're tickled to have you, and tell us a little about the boys. We're watching them grow up. That's right. So I've got a three-year-old, Amos, and a six-year-old, Sylvan. They're a, they're a handful, but <laughs> um, constant constant joy. So We're just excited to have you all, and the only connection I had to Wichita Falls, Texas, was two weeks in the military in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Medical training. Wichita Falls, Texas, I thought was going to be hot. Yeah. It was January. It was freezing cold. None of us had jackets. <laughs> we learned a lot. And I was glad, uh, as they talk about Lubbock, to leave it in my rearview mirrors. Yeah. So, yeah. Was, a Shepherd, was a Shepherd Air Force Base? <laughs> it was. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. anyway, I'm sorry to, to interrupt with that, but yeah. it was one experience. Uh-huh. Now, with your career path, take us through uh, those steps after college. Take us where you started and, and yeah. bring us to where we are now. Yeah. So... I've worked a, a variety of odds and ends jobs kind of during college and after college. Um, but it was actually my, my sort of last last year in college at Nashville. I was living in a community called the Edge Hill community, which is this, it's a historically black community. And um, just like it's an amazing history, has so much, so much rich history. But when I was there, it was sort of in the beginning throes of gentrification. So there was a lot of influx of development in the city, a lot of new people moving to the community. And it was sort of the, the beginning of a fairly rapid spike in cost of living, a, a really uh, the beginning of a very big development boom in Nashville. So that meant a lot of the land in this community 
became very quickly a hot commodity. It's, it was fairly close to downtown and it was sort of this ideal location. And so all of a sudden in, a, in the course of just a few years, you know, this, this community uh, became a, a hot spot for real estate. So this is my last year at school at Belmont University and Belmont was sort of adjacent to this neighborhood. Well, and I found out that um, from reading in the newspaper that the university and the city had sort of worked out this sweetheart deal with little in the way of community process where the school was going to purchase a city-owned community park in, in this neighborhood for a private baseball field. So obviously the community was up in arms about this. This was their community park. Up until this point, it hadn't really been invested in. It was it was kind of run down, but it was the only park in the middle of this this community. And so obviously, residents were um, upset about this deal and were were pushing back. And so, as someone attending that university at the time, I was I was like, this doesn't sound right. I want to I want to learn more about what's going on. I want to talk to folks. So, I you know I walked walked down the street and. Um, Ended up connecting uh, at a small neighborhood church called Edgehill United Methodist, which had been um, a small neighborhood church in that community since the 60s. It was the first integrated Methodist church in Nashville. And it had a long history of, of being a activist church, people very involved and civically engaged and involved in the community. So through, through some relationships, I started to form there was connected to the local public housing development, which was right across the street from this park. And I started attending the public housing neighborhood association meetings and just started to learn about what the issues were around this park and more broadly what, you know, um, the pride folks felt, felt in their community and some of the challenges they were dealing with with all this development. Um, and that, that sort of launched me down this course of really beginning to have my eyes opened to the ways that sometimes there are interests of folks with money and power that sometimes conflict with the interests of everyday folks um, in our communities. And just getting to know the folks in this neighborhood association and sort of this instance around this baseball field and the way in which folks came together to push back and say, we want more for our community, for our kids, um, for our neighborhood was a huge learning experience and a huge eye-opening experience for me. Um, and that sort of put me down this path of learning about, well, how, what are the ways in which communities can come together to really work for their collective best interest, especially in the face of, you know, powerful interests that are often not attempting to understand the needs of a given community. Um, so ended up living in that neighborhood for about eight years and just became very involved with that neighborhood association. Ended up helping to, to form a neighborhood coalition from a number of groups in the community and ended up getting really involved at that time. There was a lot of um, predatory real estate where um, these giant real estate firms were coming in and sort of offering longtime residents money for their homes, cash for their homes, 
but severely under underbidding the price of the house. So they would, you know, buy a house for hundred thousand dollars, hundred twenty thousand dollars, and the next day go go uh, basically sell that lot for three hundred thousand dollars. And so there's really predatory real estate practices. And then there was a number of privately owned rental apartment complexes that were just some really horrific slum landlords that were, you know, there was people with sewage coming out of the back of their homes and sort of no recourse for the tenants. So I ended up getting really involved in working particularly with low income tenants in the community to organize together, to hold landlords accountable and to work to push back against some of the predatory real estate practices in that. That often sounds so like just a horrible movie that we see. And and we could liken you at times to Aaron Brockovich. Could we not? Uh, so, I, oddly, like... I, <laughs> that same activism or a different level? I'm not trying to put that there, No, but, no, no, no. I, but it's just go for the good of the order for the people that are there. Sure, sure. And I, and I would say... I think the the maybe the more analogous thing would be this is it's a community of of folks like that, and right, I think that right. sort of my role was is was coming alongside and, and really learning from folks on the ground that were already working together, and I think the role of an organizer, as I as I learned from others in this community, is to help listen. And understand where folks are coming from, and be a connector, mm-hmm. and to to help provide support in creating structure around the relationships and the amazing wisdom and experience of folks already in these communities, and helping to provide structure for folks to to work together and achieve a goal that they establish together. So I think that's yeah. that's sort of the the as I've learned it and continue to learn it, I think that's the role of a, of a community organizer is not to chart out exactly what needs to happen or tell people what to do or assume that you have the solution, but to help people have a conversation with each other to decide together what needs to happen and how they're going to accomplish their goals together. Excellent, excellent. Well, my idea and that analogy is probably not as good, but what I see is somebody who's willing to take uh, a, a situation on, help the others, the organization, skills that you have, and as you say, connection. And those of us who have felt maybe like through our careers, underdogs, fighting against systems, uh, you know, and connecting and getting the people to agree and, and arrive at solutions. And it's tough. And there are days, as you're pointing out, that you're fighting folks with a lot of power, mm-hmm. a lot of money behind the power. Mm-hmm. There's nothing worse than, than what you're describing to me. Or, well, there's a lot of things worse, but mm-hmm. nothing worse than taking advantage of others, especially in what I like your term, predatory real estate. Mm-hmm. Tons of good folks who do real estate transactions, but when those come in, mm-hmm. uh, and I have known, sadly, through my long life, slum landlords watch the poor people suffer. Mm-hmm. Now, take us as you have moved into your current role and describe the organization for us mm-hmm. 
and and where you all are in Tennessee and your particular function in the organization. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. So b- before this position, I did. So after living in Nashville, we moved to Chattanooga. I ended up working for about three years with the central labor councils in Chattanooga and Knoxville. So working with labor unions and helping to provide the connection between folks within unions and community organizations. So I did that for about three and a half years. And then, yeah, just about uh, almost two years ago, um, ended up taking a, a job with an organization called Statewide Organizing for Community Empowerment. And so that SOCOM is the uh, the acronym. So we're known as SOCOM. But SOCOM was actually founded in 1972. So we just just went through our 50th year as an organization. And it was founded in the coal fields of East Tennessee. And very kind of similar to what I described with the, the folks in, in the Edgehill community in Nashville, of folks coming together to to push back against um, interests that ne- didn't necessarily uh, have the community interests at heart. Folks in the in coalfields in East Tennessee, there was a lot of communities dealing with the impacts of the coal industry, both workers that were experiencing really awful conditions, dealing with black lung um, and sort of the, the health impacts and not really having much, much recourse from the coal industry to a lot of folks that relied on well water that were having their well water poisoned because of the lack of structures in place to um, hold these coal companies accountable for the environmental impact. And so these were folks in deeply rural communities in East Tennessee who were going head to head with these multi, multi, multi million dollar um, coal companies who on the one hand were providing work and jobs and in some ways did, you know, had a very big part of the uh, of the the social structure of these communities and also there were particular ways that they were not being held accountable and were really harming some of these communities and so Sockham was founded in 1972 and for many years um, worked bringing folks together in these communities to push back and to create tighter uh, environmental regulations for the coal companies and to pass laws at both a local and state level and also to have more tighter regulations around strip mining um, throughout the region. So that was sort of the roots of Sockham. And then over the years from the, the, you know, the eighties into the nineties, the work began to expand. So while the, you know, the foundations were really in this particular area, really sort of um, dealing with issues of the, these coal companies, they found that oftentimes other issues were coming up. We, the folks were organizing at a local level in towns and in counties, but there were issues around public education that were coming up. There were issues around housing coming up that, that were really impacting folks. So the model of Sockham really became rooted in this member leadership chapter-based model where folks in a given community would come together and really determine what were the issues that were most pressing in their community that they wanted to try to address together. And then as an organization, we come together within the local community to identify those issues, analyze what the power structures are, 
and to come up with a plan together of how community members can address the issues together. And so that happens at a local level. And then sometimes issues pop up that go beyond just a given community or a county. And in those cases, the organization helps coordinate statewide campaigns that may have to do with passing state level, state level legislation or addressing, addressing issues that go beyond a given county or a town. Um, so at, at the root, SOCOM is about bringing people together to talk with each other, build relationships with each other, identify the ways in which they want to see their community improve, and actually coming up with a plan and a course of action to achieve those goals together. That's excellent. And I know that, that you've been involved with a lot of our folks here in town forming a group that we're pretty excited about, McMinn Neighbors. And that is an offshoot uh, for our listeners from a uh, kind of a, a book panning situation, if you will. And, and uh, if you don't mind sharing, Austin, sure. that that first step and then how you arrived at, at beginning to get this group yeah. Uh, formed. Yeah. Well, I think what happened with McMinn Neighbors is a perfect example. It's a microcosm of, of the Sockham model. So, you know... The dates are blurring together now. I guess January of last year, I think is right. Um, it came to light that um, with no real community input or public notice, the county school board had removed a book from the, uh, ended up being the, the middle school and high school libraries. Uh, it was a graphic novel called Mouse, which was a, a graphic novel about the Holocaust. And basically, they had unilaterally made a decision to remove the book without me, without following the processes that were in place to make decisions like that. It was just a one meeting. One of the board members brought it up. Everyone voted, and the, the book was removed. So uh, once that decision came to light... There was a lot of concern from local community members, and all of a sudden overnight it became national news, because this is also in a context both within Tennessee and nationally. Obviously, we're seeing more of these conversations about school boards controlling what students are learning, and there's we're hearing stories of book bans across the country. So anyway, this instance in McMinn County became a national story, and you know, I think one of the downfalls of that, while in some ways it's great that, you know, that something like this, you know, is concerning at a national level. I think the downside is it also quickly became this narrative about the backward South and like, oh, this is just, you know, rural, rural Tennessee, those backward hicks, they don't, you know, they're just so backwards and they, they're just, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of insulting language. But I think what came to light is that this was an issue that was actually very concerning to a lot of folks in McMinn County. On the one hand, for many folks, the issue was we actually do need this sort of material in our classrooms. We, we need our kids to be able to grapple with hard things and to um, you know learn about the Holocaust through these sorts of stories. And then there's also a lot of folks that may actually not like the book, that they, they do think it's too much for our kids. 
But for those folks, there was an issue of the fact that our board didn't follow the proper process to actually have the have the book removed. They sort of made this unilateral decision. And for those folks, that idea that a board could just do that unilaterally without following the process is scary. So all that to say, mm-hmm. folks sort of gathered together around this issue. We held a press conference. We attended meetings. And there was a, a group of about 30 to 40 folks that just began to meet with each other regularly within our county to say, like, well, what is what are ways that we can constructively address this? You know, not necessarily assuming, assuming ill intent on behalf of the board members, but what are the ways that we collectively can push for for our board members to actually follow process and, and, and hear from community members when decisions are like this are being made? So that was sort of the, the initial spark. There's a lot of great conversation about that issue. And then kind of as, as the, the months went on, this group continued to work together. And, you know, we, the group began to see that there's many other issues around public education that's felt is really important for our community to be more engaged and involved with. So later that year, the, you know, the school board elections were coming up for the First time in, in quite a while, there was we we held a um, school board forum to actually bring candidates for school board together to to ask questions and hear their thoughts in a, in a public way on on a, on a number of issues and to actually um, have more robust conversation about policies and, and the direction these candidates um, had in mind for our schools. So that was sort of the the birth of McMinn County neighbors. Folks came together and decided, hey, we, we want to keep this conversation going. We want to keep working together, having parents and teachers talking with each other about what we need and what we want for our schools in McMinn County. And so I could, I could go on and, and maybe there's other questions about sort of what the group is doing now, but I'll pause for there. Well, that was just a great start and, and we saw a good deal of positive come out of that as you point out not to fight battles as much as the connectability and bringing these issues forward which was tremendous and then then now let's segue into some more about the education because as as many of our listeners and certainly if you're not in Tennessee and we appreciate those listening elsewhere we have a law now on the books the so-called third grade retention law and and this has been really causing a great deal of discussion take us through some of those steps austin as to what is going on and what what the group is looking at please yeah sure so so maybe take it so mcminn neighbors um formed here in mcminn county eventually mcminn neighbors became a, a chapter of sockham and we have chapters throughout the state. Well, uh, organiz- organizationally, as a, as a statewide organization, um, we have an annual meeting where we sort of discuss what are the issues that make sense for us to tackle together at a statewide level. And we had a lot of discussion on this between our chapters and, and among our members. And at our last annual meeting, the membership voted that public education should be a long-term focus area. For our organization as a whole, not just one chapter, but for a statewide organization 
we're seeing a, an increase, a, a increasing attacks on public education, both a defunding of public schools, a shift of funding, state funding to private charter schools, and just an ongoing lack of resourcing and a stripping of control from teachers in the classroom. And so we think it's very important that parents and teachers at our local level and across the state come together to fight for public schools. So with that background, we found out that in 2021, in the height of the pandemic, the state legislature passed a law, again, with no community or teacher engagement, no real process of engaging experts in the field. They passed a law that would require all third graders who do not pass a single portion of the standardized uh, ELA TCAP test to automatically be put on a track for retention. And so again, one 30 minute test at one point in the year based on this law would determine whether a third grader gets held back. And then with that, there are stipulations that if basically if this third grader doesn't, doesn't score um, passing there, even if they're approaching passing, if they don't pass that test, they're given the option to attend a 90% attendance mandatory summer school uh, after they haven't passed this test. And then they'll have the opportunity to retake that test after these two months of summer school. And only if they retake that test after the two months of summer school and pass it, will they be able to still continue on? And so the estimate statewide is that under this law, based on the prior year's test scores on that, that portion of the ELA test, that about 65% of third graders statewide would be held back. 65%. That's just over 52,000 third graders across the state would be uh, automatically held back under this law. So basically, we, along with many other organizations, once, once it came to light that this law had been passed and we knew it was going to be implemented during the 2023 school year, alarm bells started going off in school districts across the state. So the first step that we took um, as an organization is to say this is an issue that we know parents teachers, and school administrators are all on the same page about. There are no school administrators. There are no third grade teachers. And when parents know about it, there's very few parents who think this is a good idea. So we launched a letter campaign, an online form that folks could uh, fill out this form. They could, they could learn a little bit about the issue and then directly send their representatives uh, an email requesting that they amend the law. So over the course of just a few months, we ended up getting over a thousand, a thousand folks across the state signing this letter. Folks began, we began hosting sort of regular bi-weekly virtual meetings to bring, bring parents and teachers from across the state together to discuss the issue and 
provided action steps for folks to to first work with their local school boards, to push their school boards to pass resolutions asking the state to amend the law. Because we felt it was really important that our state legislators were hearing from school boards. We had folks organizing town halls with other parents and, and, and teachers to raise awareness about the issue. And then having folks meet directly with their legislature. And our asks for this, what we want to see happen is that retention, all the evidence says retention, blanket retention is never a good idea. Retention in very rare circumstances is needed, but retention decisions need to be based on all data about a student, not a single test. And it needs to be a decision made between the teachers, the parents, and the school staff who know that student and really understand the, the bigger picture of who that student is and what their reading ability is. No one is saying we want to just pass kids to pass kids, but we don't think a standardized test one day uh, at one point in the year is the way that we measure how well a student is doing. It's amazing. Very, very disturbing. I agree with you. Do you feel that your, your folks are making some headway or you're hearing from some Absolutely. legislators now? Absolutely. So, like I said, with um, our link up to this point, we've had over 1,300 people uh, send uh, emails via our action links. Now I think the, the number is up to 30-something school boards, including Athens City and McMinn County, have passed resolutions calling on the, the state legislature to um, amend the law. Because of all the calls, the emails, the school boards, there have been 19 amendment bills filed on this law. So basically the, the pushback has been so, so ubiquitous that across the board, 19 amendments have been filed, most of them by Republican lawmakers. And one of those bills in particular, actually Representative Travis from down the road from us in Dayton, has actually put forward an amazing bill that actually does what what we're asking for, which is to return the decision making back to local the local school district and to not have the state step in and make any blanket requirements based on testing. So that's the particular bill that that we're pushing. But yeah, it's been that those amendments were only filed because of the collective pushback from parents and educators and, and school administrators. And, you know, right now we, we have, um, we've heard from Representative Haston's office, who's the chair of the K through 12 subcommittee, that his office is literally getting multiple hundreds of calls and emails per week mm-hmm. on this issue. Um, so at this point, the K through 12 subcommittee in the house is going to be meeting on, uh, the 14th of March to deliberate all these various amendments. I think any way you cut it, there is going to be an amendment filed, which is good. I think um, the challenge is making sure that we actually get a good amendment, not one that just says, all right, well, we'll broaden the testing requirement a little bit, which is which is what some of the proposals are saying. Oh, that's, that's excellent. <clears throat> excellent work. And let's, let's do hope that, sincerely they will see that this needs to be changed and 
as many laws come down, and I've worked on the medical side over the years, locally and nationally, and, and you just hope yeah. somebody gets the big picture. Well, and, I, but, yeah. and I think the other side of this is like, we don't want this retention bill, but what we do want is we know what does work is early intervention. Yes. And to have more resources for teachers and school staff to support kids in K through second grade. And so what we're saying is if you really want a, a solution to support our kids, don't do this blanket retention law that has no evidence in favor of it. Instead, give us more funding, give our local schools more funding to do what we know works, which is early intervention, more resources for our teachers and staff to support students, decrease class sizes, not let's not increase class sizes, which there we have another representative Lundberg out of Sullivan County um, has been pushing a bill to expand class sizes. And then we have our speaker Sexton, who is calling on the state legislature to refuse $1.9 billion of federal funding for our schools. So we have legislators who are wanting to increase reliance on standardized testing while also passing bills that are going to grow our class sizes and decrease the amount of money we have for our local schools. Mm. And so I think this is the sort of hypocrisy that we need to call out and, and we need to, to push our representatives to do better for our kids. Uh, amen to that. Thank you so, so much, Austin, for bringing that up. I'm going to get you back in a future podcast to talk about things you enjoy, like your own career as a graphic novelist, and we'll do that later. But thank you so much for being with us today and for helping to stimulate our audience to become parts of of activism that is important in your life uh, with positive outcomes, and especially when it comes to education for our children. They are, I've said this thousands of times, they are our legacy. What we leave behind is the most important thing that we can do while we're here. And as a wrap-up, any other comments you'd like to make to the audience? No, I just appreciate the time. And I think the, the best thing I think we can do is to listen to each other and continue to join together, listen to each other, plan together, and take action together on the things that matter in our communities. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much. Our guest today has been Austin Sauerbrock, community activist, and has brought some great thoughts for future timing. And really appreciate him being with us today. And as I say to each and every one of you, uh, if you have any questions, you just need to contact me at shellgriff at gmail.com. That's S-H-E-L-G-R-I-F at gmail.com and if you have questions for Austin or me I'll get them back to him hope we can do another program in the near future and as I also say I hope each and every one of you have a safe and healthy day and I'll see you a little further on up the road